In this short period of time, the devil with such wrath knows he has to change his strategy. And the strategy is this. I'm going after the leaders. I'm going to focus all my attention on everyone who has spiritual authority. Everyone who walks close to Christ. Every prayer warrior. I'm going after their, I'm going after their very faith. I'm going after their homes, their marriages. I'm going to try to paralyze every spiritual man and woman on the face of the earth. As we see this strategy unfolding everywhere we look, pastors, missionaries, Christian leaders, deacons, elders falling left and right, spiritual authority being robbed, we see this strategy unfolding before our very eyes. Satan's final war against the church of Christ is targeted at the elect. Paralyze every spiritual leader, destroy, seduce, bewitch all spiritual authority. And now you see the devil's latest hands on every invention of man to use in this battle. The devil owns the internet. He owns it. 300,000 porno sites. He owns it. He owns the film industry. And folks, do you think he's aiming at all the people who are hooked on pornography now? All of the wicked masses who are hooked on the lust of the flesh? He already owns them. These things are aimed now. Everything out of hell is aimed. You say, are you talking only about pastors and evangelists? No. Now, let me tell you what gives you spiritual authority. Let me tell you what in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the devil, make you marked. In the eyes of God, marked for righteousness and marked for usefulness. In the devil's eye, marked for this final attack. Is that you have set your heart on Christ. You seek him with all your heart and mind and soul and spirit. You've turned from the things of this world. And you have laid a hold of something that you won't let go and the devil knows it. And you're a testimony of the righteousness of Christ in this dark, wicked age. If you're a praying man or woman, believing, trusting God, living in his righteousness by faith, you are marked. You're in that leadership. You're in that elite guard. Not, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's not going after the children of death. He's not going after his own children. He's got them. Why would he waste any? He'd be a stupid devil to waste his ammunition on those he's already killed. Satan understands that secret sin in a spiritual man will paralyze him. All his power and authority will be gone. And if sin is persisted on and becomes habitual, he knows the man can no longer speak for God, can no longer have any impact on anyone living in sin. The Bible says... Now, in the King James, it said dead flies in the ointment. But in the original Hebrew, it says flies of death cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor, smell. So that the little folly, him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. He said, God says, I want to, I want to show you. He's speaking from his word. I want to show you. It's the, it's that dead fly. It's what you think insignificant is up and judged. And you, that, the enemy comes and just throws in that sweet-smelling savor, that prayer life. There's a dead fly. See, there's a compromise. There's something of the world. There's something out of sin. There's something of flesh. The Bible says the dead fly in your oil of anointment, your oil of unction, your oil of anointing, a dead fly, that one thing that God's been dealing with, that one thing. He said that that beautiful aroma has been coming up again to send forth a stench, to stink up the place. In anyone who's been touched with the favor of God and held in honor. You see, the Lord says, no dark place in our hearts. 
nothing that the enemy can touch. Satan comes there's nothing in me. And there's a reason for that. And that'll unfold here as you see it in just a moment. You see, the devil's plan is to put this fly of death, just a touch of flesh, a touch of the world. Let me tell you what's at stake. And the reason Satan's now focusing all his power on the spiritual man. Paul sets forth the issue, and here it is. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Paul said, now there's a spiritual man and there's a natural man. The spiritual man knows the mind of Christ. He's full of the Holy Ghost. No part dark, no flies of death in him. He's got spiritual wisdom. He has revelation from God. He has an open heaven. And God reveals his mind to the spiritual man. The scripture says, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Things that no man can know. And God gives it and speaks it through those who are spiritual. Paul said, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He said, when you came to hear me preaching, when I came to Corinth, he was speaking about his visit to Corinth. And he said, when I came to you, he said, I determined to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. Because Paul knew that congregation. They were living in fornication, incest. They, they were living in covetousness. They, they were coming and drinking unworthily at the Lord's table. And he said, he, he, he said, I had to make a determination how I was going to come to you. I can't come with wisdom. He said, I learned it at Athens. And I can't match my wits with the world. He said, I determine when I come to you, I'll know nobody. I'll preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. But he said, when I came to you, and this is in retrospect, he's looking back. And in a letter, he said, when I came to you, you know how I came. Some of you said my, my speech was contemptible. You could hardly stand my my delivery. He said it wasn't in my preaching. It wasn't in man's wisdom. But I had an anointing on me. I had heard from heaven. And I came in the demonstration of the Holy Ghost and power. Now what is that? Demonstration of the Holy Ghost. We have a lot of people who think the demonstration of the Holy Ghost people falling on the floor. Wiggling. Shaking. Now God can shake you and wiggle you. I, I, I believe God can take people and just prostrate them. I'm not mocking that. But that's not what Paul's talking about. The demonstration of the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with Paul's body. It was not raising his voice like I'm raising mine right now because a loud voice doesn't, it doesn't imply anointing. Sometimes when you get anointed, you can't help it. You just explode. But that does not designate the anointing. See, the demonstration of the Holy, Sp Holy Spirit was not some aura or countenance that changed in Paul. He was not doing anything but quietly delivering the word of God. And there was suddenly a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. It was the word of God delivered through a spiritual man. You see, the Corinthians had moved out of the spiritual realm into the natural realm. And that's what's happening to the church of Jesus Christ today. You sit in front of a television and you drink and drink and drink. And I'm telling you, slipping hour by hour into the natural man that can no longer comprehend the things of God because you lose your discernment. And now Paul said, I'm coming to Corinth to a natural people living in the flesh. They're natural again. They're not spiritual men and women. They're carnal. The carnal man is the natural man. He said, I couldn't even speak to you as spiritual people anymore. But the demonstration of the Holy Ghost with power was the effect his preaching had on the hearers, on the people, on the Corinthians. And let me give you an explanation of the demonstration. And here it is. You see, Paul had preached about separation and holiness. 
But be not unequally unequally yoked with unbelievers. Come out from among them. Be separate and clean. Touch not the unclean thing. Touch not the unclean thing. That word of Paul was so anointed of the Holy Spirit. There was a demonstration. Life change is the demonstration. People walking out of the house of God with a message they can't shake out of their head or out of their heart. And they have to act on it. Because the Holy Spirit keeps moving them in the direction of the word they've received. And here it is. You sorrowed to repentance. You were made sorry after a godly manner. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what cleansing, what carefulness, what clearing of yourself. Indignation, what zeal, what fear, what vehement desire, what revenge. In all things you've approved yourselves clear in this matter. He said you wouldn't eat, sleep, you wouldn't do anything until you made sure you lined up for the word that I preached. They had drifted from Christ and were compromising. You see, folks, here's the dilemma. We go out now. Let me put it as simply as I can. You show me a church of 10,000, 25,000 people, masses coming. And those that come to church, if they're not a preaching of repentance, if they're not changing, they're, they're all natural people. They're carnal. They're still living in sin. Because there's no message and no conviction and no Holy Ghost moving in the church. And if the man in the pulpit is just a man of ambition, if he too is in the natural and he is in the flesh, I want to tell you that... A whole congregation can go to hell because they've never had a met. They don't understand. There's nobody there to open their eyes. There's no message from heaven that pierces the wall. There's nothing that gets through to the heart. And I'm convinced as many people are going to hell in the church than anywhere else in society. Going to hell right in church because natural men are speaking to natural men and they don't understand. Now what's my point? Satan knows that men seduced back into the realm of the natural can no longer hear or receive a word that can change a life. Comes blinded. There's no message. No anointing. Nothing that pierces the heart. And that's why Satan's going after every spiritual elder, deacon, Sunday school teacher, anyone in any kind of ministry, choir, going after with everything out of hell. And I'm telling you, folks, there's never been a time when you have been more tested than you are now. It's possible for a church to have reputation without reality. And that's possible for individuals as well. And when that's true... It's a tragedy. May the Spirit of Christ help us never to be so taken up with things on the surface that we forget that our hearts must be fully committed to him. Human opinion matters little. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So what's with the church at Sardis? How did they become so dead? How did the pulse of the church become so thready and weak? Well, it all comes down to lethargy. The church had gone dormant. Now, however it had happened in their case, they'd been lulled into a deep, deep sleep. The sleep, actually, of the cemetery. And that's exactly why Jesus commands them to wake up. Now, our Lord does not explain how that happened at Sardis, and I'm not going to conjecture. 
But how does a church fall into lethargy today? Well, it happens when enough of the members of that church doze off spiritually. It happens when enough of that church's members doze off spiritually. And that dozing off can happen in many different ways. Sometimes Christians go to sleep through distraction. Sometimes Christians go to sleep through seduction. Sometimes Christians go to sleep through discouragement. Now, no doubt you can think of other ways to deception, for example, or persecution, though neither of those seems to have been an issue in the church at Sardis. Jesus doesn't mention those at all, though he does in other letters. Distraction, seduction, discouragement. They are often the ways in which Christians fall into spiritual lethargy. Wonder if that's you, by the way. Is there something in your life which is distracting you from living for Jesus? could be a perfectly good thing which has just got a bit out of proportion. Is there something taking your eyes off him? Is there something in your life which is seducing you away from living for Jesus? Is there some sinful thing or maybe some perfectly innocent thing which you're just starting to love more than him? Is there something which is wowing you away from walking with the Lord? Is there some discouragement in your life which is causing you to falter? in your walk, walk with Jesus? Are you feeling so flat that you're stumbling in your relationship with him? But here's the thing. If enough church members get spiritually lethargic, what you end up with is a church which is spiritually lethargic. And before you know it, you're in Sardis. It'd be a bit of a surprise if there weren't some of us who are feeling spiritually lethargic. It's been such a strange time. It's been draining on pretty much all of us in different ways. Fellowship has been hard. Corporate worship has been hard. It's been impossible at times. Service has been hard. Quiet time routines have been hard with all the disruption and all the upheaval. It's been so easy for distraction and seduction and discouragement to creep in. It's dangerous if it has. What if that is us as a church right now? Well, that brings us to our third step through the passage. Jesus revives lethargic churches. Jesus revives lethargic churches. Listen to verse 1b to 3 this time. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So there's the church at Sardis, a spiritually lethargic church full of spiritually lethargic people. Nevertheless, Jesus offers hope here, but it's hope which comes in the form of a short, sharp shock. Now, I wonder if that's ever happened to you. Uh, You're suddenly impacted by a sermon, or you're stunned by a verse you read in your quiet time, or you're challenged by a Christian friend about something which you're doing, or you're rattled, shaken to the core by an unexpected calamity, or just something which unsettles you in life. It's come to you as a short, sharp shock. And here's the church at Sardis, a spiritually lethargic church full of spiritually lethargic people. Jesus offers them hope, 
but it's hope which comes in the form of a short, sharp shock. What he does is give them five staccato imperatives, five short, sharp commands. Let me read verses 1b to 3 to you again, and I'll emphasize them. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come to you like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember, obey and repent. Bang, 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 bang. And here's what it all boils down to. Christians at Sardis need to go back to the cross. They need to remember how they'd received and heard the word of God in those earliest days. They need to travel back in their minds to the gospel. And then they need to wake up and smell the coffee. They need to repent of their lethargy. They need to obey the word of God once more. And so they need to return right back to the commitment of their earliest days as Christians. The thing is, if they do Jesus will welcome them back. It's only if they do not that these words apply. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Only if they do not repent will he come in judgment on them and bring the church to a close. Jesus revives lethargic churches. So what should you do if you realize that you are spiritually lethargic right now? Now, what, in fact, if that's true of all of us as a church, as uh, uh, true of us as a whole? Well, do what Jesus tells the people of Sardis. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember, obey and repent. Take this sermon, take this passage from the word of God as a short, sharp shock and come back to Jesus Confess your lethargy to him. Start to live wholeheartedly for him again. Live out a life of total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, if you've never come to Jesus Christ before, well, you need to do the same sort of thing. Confess your wrongdoing to him. Trust in Jesus Christ. Start to live for him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He died on the cross and he rose again to save all who trust in him. So trust in him, repent, and believe. And then in all of your deadness, he will give you life. He will give you spiritual life. He will give you life to the full. He will give you eternal life. So why not come? And why not come now? Jesus revives lethargic churches. And then there's one last step in our passage. Fourthly, fourthly, Jesus knows our names. Jesus knows our names. We're going to move very quickly through verses four to six, but here they come. Yet, says Jesus, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, but they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. What is Jesus saying? Well, by the end of verse three, you might be left with the impression that there is literally nothing good about the church at Sardis. But actually, Jesus knows that he still does have his faithful people there. Literally, he says this. But you have a few names. 
You have a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ knows the names of those who have remained faithful to him. And what will become of them? What will become of those who overcome like that? Well, they'll be dressed in white. Uh, to strip away the, the uh, imagery, they will stand justified before the Lord. How? Well, Revelation chapter 7 verse 15 explains, Speaking of those before the throne of the Lord in heaven, we hear these words, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ which makes them white, which justifies them. And their names, those names which Jesus knows, they will never be blotted out from the book of life. That is really emphatic in the Greek. There is no way in the world that their names will ever be blotted out from the book of life. That, that doesn't mean that some names might be blotted out. It's just expressing as strongly as possible that these people will live forever. Their names will never be blotted out. And Jesus will acknowledge those names, those names which he knows before his father and before the angels in heaven. Jesus vouches for his people so that they pass into heaven when their time comes. Jesus knows our names. He knows the names of his people. He makes sure that those names are never blotted out from heaven's register. He vouches for their names before his heavenly father. And that is brilliant. Because Jesus knowing your name, it gives access to God's presence. It gives access to heaven. It gives access to the new heavens and new earth of the age to come. It gives access to paradise for all eternity. So can you see how encouraging verses four to six must have been for God's faithful people? That he might be a small minority. Sadly, they might even be a small minority within a church. But Jesus knows their names. He vouches for those names. And when Jesus vouches for you, there is no blessing which you are cut off from. That is amazing. So why not let that spread peace and joy all over your heart? If you're feeling a bit beleaguered or low just now, Jesus knows our names. So as we end, Christian, let's just spend a moment or two reflecting on what a privilege it is to be one of Jesus' people. He knows your name. So let's remember that human opinion matters little. That a lack of vigilance is deadly. That Jesus revives lethargic churches. But then, let's rejoice that he knows our names. Let's reflect on that for a few seconds.